Communion is observed in Christian churches all around the world. But what is the Lord's Supper, and why is it important? Well, today, Pastor Mike Fabares is talking about the significance of communion, right here on Focal Point. I'm Dave Drury, and welcome to Focal Point. On today's edition of Ask Pastor Mike, we're tackling a subject that has caused some confusion across the centuries, communion. Catholics talk about transubstantiation. Lutherans mention consubstantiation. Calvinists believe it's a spiritual meal, and Zwingli call it a memorial meal. So there's a lot of fuzzy talk about the Lord's Supper. But what exactly is communion, according to the Word of God? Right now, we'll ask Pastor Mike as we join Focal Point's Executive Director, Jay Wharton, inside the pastor study. Jay? Thanks, Dave. Pastor Mike, one of our listeners has a question about 1 Corinthians 11.27, and that's the passage that warns us about eating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. I guess the first question would be, what does that mean? But maybe you can back up and talk a little bit about what communion is and explain the meaning behind it. Yeah, well, in the passage, it's interesting. There's so much um, warning. They were trying to commemorate the Lord's Supper, which is clearly, as we see it instituted in the Gospels, a reminder for the church from now until he returns of Christ's death and what it means. It's a covenant, a promise of his forgiveness that comes through the death of Christ, the substitutionary death of Christ becomes the promise of our forgiveness. And the transaction of the cross is something we're supposed to remember with this tangible experience and participation in eating the bread and drinking the cup. And as he speaks to the Corinthians about this, he says, you've got problems and the way you're doing it is ending up becoming a source of judgment on you. I mean, right after that passage in verse 31, it says, you know, if you would just judge yourself, you wouldn't have to be judged by God. You're being disciplined in this act because you're going about it the wrong way. So the Lord's Supper is supposed to be something very profound for the church to remember the death of Christ and to remember that our life is dependent on his death. Our forgiveness is bound up in that transaction on the cross and that I'm ingesting these elements as a picture and a statement of my full participation in that. I'm trusting in Christ. I stand with Christ. I rely on Christ and what he did on the cross. So that's what the Lord's Supper is all about. And the issue of sin in Corinth, if you look at the context, I mean, they were just so messed up in how they were going about it. And Paul calls them to examine themselves, see how you're going about all this and the sin that you bring to the table. And you need to search your heart. You need to confess your sin. You need to get right with God before you start engaging in such an important act of uh, the church remembering the death of Christ. Well, Pastor Mike, then can a non-believer eat the Lord's Supper or maybe somebody struggling in their faith or living in sin? What would we say to that? Yeah, well, maybe two out of the three, I would say. Obviously, a non-Christian should not be participating in the Lord's Supper. And hopefully the pastor at your church, you know, makes that clear when he stands up to administer this. So... This is something for Christians to do. And Jay, you've been in the service many, many times that I've led the Lord's Supper, and that's always what I say. You, you know, This is something for those who participate spiritually in Christ that get to participate in this meal. So no, non-Christians should not be 
participating. And those living in sin, they should, I want them to participate, but what they need to do is in that time of reflection that I always provide is for people to repent of their sin and get right with God. Struggling in their faith though, when people say that, I often think that what they mean may be what a lot of us deal with in our Christian growth and just wondering certain open-ended questions that I haven't quite tied up or whatever. And I think, yeah, we can participate in the Lord's Supper and still have questions, still have concerns, still have certain frustrations or doubts about a certain aspect of my uh, theology or my understanding of God. I get that. But if someone is in sin and unwilling to repent of that sin, then no, you should not be participating in the Lord's Supper, or better yet, get saved and participate, or repent of your sin and participate. I want everyone to participate. I just don't want you to participate, as the text says there in 1 Corinthians 11, in an unworthy manner, which is not only the clear description of what's going on in Corinth, but you know, obviously to extend to non-Christians who don't acknowledge the death of Christ as a death for them. They don't acknowledge their sin, don't acknowledge the fact that God is God and they need Christ. Uh, and certainly those that are living in open rebellion against God, they need to test themselves and they need to realize they need to get that right before God. And then they can participate. What does the Bible have to say about the frequency of the Lord's Supper? Certainly we look across the landscape of churches and there are some people doing it weekly, monthly, at regular intervals. Every time they meet, they get the saltines and the grape juice out. What what's sure. what should be the directive well, on that? I think, you know, I'm I'm talking mostly, I assume, to congregants across the country, but you should participate in it as often as your church participates in it. So if that's weekly, great. If that's monthly, fine. You know, if it's periodic, great. Just be a part of it. If a church leader is asking the question, I suppose I would say, because this is a modified format of the Passover meal, which was an annual meal, clearly it needs to be at least once a year. The pattern of the early church was to do it every time they gathered. It doesn't need to be that. The Bible doesn't give us that directive, but it ought to be something that we do as a regular pattern of church life. And I think church leaders have some flexibility in this because the Bible didn't prescribe how often this happens to be able to decide how often that is. Like in my practice of ministry, I try not to do it so often that it becomes a ritual routine and part of the liturgy that people don't get a chance to think about what they're doing. So we don't do it every service, but I don't want to do it so infrequently that you only think about it you know, every now and again. So pastors and leaders need to make those decisions for their churches. And then I would say every congregant needs to make sure they're there when the Lord's Supper is being served. Well, thank you, Pastor Mike. I trust this has helped clarify the purpose and benefit of the Lord's Supper. And we're going to continue this conversation with a message that you did from one of your Thursday night study sessions called God's Church on Communion. The Lord's Supper. When we talk about the Lord's Supper, I guess uh, this is the, the phrase I usually use, the Lord's Supper, four distinctive views on this. The first one, of course, transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. Let's talk about that. Define it here in a second. Obviously, this is the Roman Catholic view. It is also, you may not know, the Eastern Orthodox view. Proponents, if you want to look for the guy who probably at least initially spelled this thing out with great detail, it would be Thomas Aquinas, who I, I hope you know. He's a 13th century thinker. This is prior to the Reformation, obviously. The Catholic Church was all there was. And uh, he defines and puts and codifies in his theology the definitions that we're about to look at here. Okay? All right, what are we saying? Let's define it. 
relation to Christ. All of these are going to be relation to Christ because that's the question. And clearly the statement seemed to say, is the body of Christ, blood of Christ? Well, what is it? Well, transubstantiation, you're going to go and get some unleavened bread. You're going to get some wine or some uh, fruit of the vine, as the text says. And what's happening there? Well, here's what transubstantiation teaches. The elements of the wine and the bread turn into the body and blood of Christ. Wow. Okay, but that seems to be what we're reading there. This is my body. This is my blood. Um, you know, I do this. I'm, I'm participating in the body and blood of Christ. So uh, I can see where they come to that. Well, you can't really mean that they believe it turns into on a cellular. I mean, this really happens. Yeah. That's the teaching of the Catholic Church. This is uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church, as I said last week, their latest definitive authoritative word from Rome. Section 1376 says, By the consecration of the bread and wine at the Mass, right? The consecration, when he consecrates it and prays and lifts it up, there takes place a change of the whole substance. That's where we get the word transubstantiation, right? The substance of the bread. There is a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord. So it actually magically, boom, it changes substance. And the whole substance of the wine changes into the substance of his blood. This change, the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called trans, the change, substantiation. The substance changes, right? That's what we're saying. That's what the Catholic Church is saying. The elements literally actually turn into a replacement of the body and blood of Christ. The bread's the body now and the blood is the blood of Christ. It is an actual, let's get down to the meaning. It is an actual sacrifice of Christ to atone for sins. Think this through now. I'm breaking the bread. I am, I mean, that's the picture now. It's wafers and all of that. But the picture was, we're certainly chewing it up and digesting it in the Catholic Mass. And we're, at least the priest is drinking the wine. They don't let the laity drink the wine anymore. Here, though, they're saying what's happening is an actual sacrifice of Christ. Don't let me use my words. Let's use the words of the official authoritative theological statement from Rome. Section 1367. The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. Note this now. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of the priests who then offered himself on the cross. Hey, the Eucharist is one and the same sacrifice. Victim is one and the same. It's Christ. One now is, is offered through the ministry of the priest, and then Christ himself offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of the offering is different. Okay? In this divine sacrifice, what, what you're saying is the actual ministry of the priest with the Mass is an actual sacrifice. No, this is a divine sacrifice which is celebrated in the Mass. The same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. Okay? That's the teaching of the Catholic Church. There is a sacrifice going on, one and the same as the sacrifice that took place on the cross. It is an actual sacrifice of Christ to atone for sins. You get to eat the wafer at least, don't get to drink the wine anymore in the Catholic Church, but you get to eat it and it's food that is now, because it's a sacrifice of Christ, freeing you from venial sins, right? Not mortal sin, but venial sins. And you know they categorize sins and I think we talked a little bit about that last week, maybe, maybe not. Yeah, we talked about, yeah, mortal sin gets washed away by the sacrament of baptism, according to the Catholic Church, and venial sins are washed away and removed from my intake of the Eucharist. That is the teaching of transubstantiation in a box, in a nutshell, okay? Let's keep moving. Consubstantiation. The doctrine of consubstantiation is not held to by the Catholics. This was a modified, mitigated view, okay? Who holds this view? The Lutherans do. 
Well, who do you think the proponent of this was? Sure, jolly old Martin Luther. Martin Luther was the architect of defining and clarifying what has come to be known as consubstantiation. Now, substantiation, you get that, the substance, that's the question. Transubstantiation, this is easy to understand, we get it. Trans, it, tr it, it, it turns into, it transforms into a different substance. Consubstantiation, Luther rejected the fact that the priest, because he didn't care for the priest, could actually, in the Mass, change by any kind of a delegated authority or inherent authority those elements into the body of Christ. He rejected that. He said, no, those elements do not turn in to the body and blood of Christ. But being trained as a priest, as he was, and a monk, uh, he had nowhere else to go in his thinking as the doctrine had developed from the 13th century on. What was he going to say? Well, here's what he said. Here was his modified view. Christ is actually with, in, and under the elements. And that's just kind of, if you read anything on theology, that's how they like to say it. That's how he stated it. He, but he's not the wafer, and he's not the wine, but he's actually there with it. Consubstantiation. Get that, right? Con. Get it. Consubstantiation. Christ is with it. What's the relation of Christ to the elements? He's there, all over it. Not it, but with it. Now, what do they mean by all this? Well, when you take the communion in a Lutheran church, if you're good Lutheran at least, holding to consubstantiation, you believe that this is a means of grace. They'll call it a sacrament. They have no problem calling it a sacrament, even though a lot of people call these things sacraments and don't know what they're saying. But the, 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 they do believe that there's some kind of grace given to you in the taking of the Lord's Supper. Okay? Well, what, kind, what do we get? They'll state it forthrightly. Through it, through the taking and partaking of it, we receive forgiveness. Now, they didn't turn it into anything, but Christ is there choosing to be with it because he did say, this is my body, this is my blood. Well, I don't think the priests have any power to turn it into that, but Christ must show up there in some special way. And then when we take it, as he said, the for it's for the forgiveness of sins. So when I take it, I must be getting some forgiveness from God. And not only that, he liked to say this too, through it I get confirmed in my faith. It strengthens my faith. It's a means of God's goodness and favor into my life by giving me through the elements in kind of a fuzzy way, forgiveness and confidence and assurance in my faith. My faith is built by taking and being nourished by the Lord's Supper. All right, third column, spiritual meal. This is a view I just called spiritual meal, the spiritual meal. Who believes that? Presbyterians believe that. Reformed churches teach this, okay? Now think this through. We had the brainiacs like Aquinas teaching transubstantiation. Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, you know, uh, bannering that. We had Luther come along. He goes, well, I'm not buying all that. So he had a mitigated view. Then his, you know, almost contemporary, his understudy here, uh, not quite his understudy, the brilliant genius John Calvin is the great proponent of this view. Obviously, he's brilliant. All these guys are smart. Uh, but John Calvin was the one who took the view further from Lutheran doctrine. He said, well, wait a minute, I don't think Martin had it quite right. And he began to change this. Okay, what, what, did, he, what did he say about it? Christ is not in, with, and under it. He's not actually there. He's spiritually present in the element. Okay, this gets really fuzzy. And, and, and it, it, it is stated, I've read so, I mean, I went to a Reformed seminary, I got a doctorate there, and a lot of fuzzy writing about the Lord's Supper, in my humble opinion. You can read the Westminster Confession, you can read the Heidelberg Confession or Catechism, you can read all these things, which I have, and it's just a lot of fuzzy talk in this. But what you'll get is Christ is spiritually present there. Not actually, certainly doesn't turn into it, but he's there in a way that he 
he's not in other stuff. And he's spiritually and focalized in his presence in the elements. They also like to call it a means of grace. Okay? Heidelberg Catechism, question 76, speaking of the Lord's Supper. It is not only then to embrace with a believing heart all the sufferings of Christ, right? But, and thereby to obtain pardon from sin and eternal life, but also besides that, to become more and more united with his sacred body by the Holy Spirit who dwells both in Christ and in us so that we through Christ, uh, who is in heaven and we on earth, notwithstanding the flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, and we are governed forever by one spirit as members of the same body and one soul. That's what's taking place when we partake of the crucified Christ. We are becoming, to quote the heart of that statement, more and more united to his sacred body. There's benefit. It is a means of grace. Something's happening to you when you do this with a, as they like to say, a qualified, or how do they put it, a worthy heart, a worthy reception of the Lord's Supper. Lastly, memorial meal, let's call it that. The memorial meal. People that believe this would be like Baptist churches, Bible churches, Compass Bible, EV Free churches, Calvary chapels, you name it. A lot of evangelical churches under this banner right here. Okay. Primary proponent of this, you then had Zwingli come along, and Ulrich Zwingli said, no, 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 uh, you guys are all wrong. And people still hate him for this view, but I was right. Christ, he says, it doesn't become it, and he's not actually there, and he's not spiritually there, any more than he is you know, in anything else as being present in the person of the Holy Spirit, omnipresent all over the world. He's not, there's no, no special presence there. Okay? It's, it's a wafer, it's unleavened bread, it's a cup of wine or a cup of, of, of fruit from the vine, grape juice, whatever. It's, it is what it is, and it's not that there's some power in the element, and it's not that there's something spiritually taking place when I participate in it, in it like the Calvinistic or the Lutheran view uh, would state. He simply says it commemorates Christ's death. It is an act of remembrance. That's what we mean by commemorate. I am intending in taking this to take my mind back as Christ commanded, do this in remembrance of me. But he's saying what most of our churches, well, not most of our church, a lot of churches don't believe it, but what our church would teach, what I would teach, and what I believe is that all of these things are word pictures regarding the profundity of what Christ is doing on the cross. We're reminded, that's the point. We are reminded of the benefits of Christ's redemptive work. And that's important, critically important in the worship of the church. We come back to remembering that. We preach Christ crucified, and then we have this ordinance of Christ that doesn't, it doesn't become a means of grace any more than anything else that brings our mind back to Christ would be a means of grace. If you want to use that phrase, and I know a lot of people who haven't split the hairs of theology very well like to use that in circles like ours, you can call it that if you want, but what's the point? What are you saying? See, Calvin said something more than what Zwingli said, and he's certainly saying something more than I would say, or certainly, uh, you know, Luther's saying way more than I would ever say, and that would be, yes, clearly there's a benefit to taking the Lord's Supper. Right? But the benefit is what's going on here in your mind to take your faith back, to strengthen your faith in what took place. And if you've heard me lead communion, you hear that's how I do it. I bring your minds back to it. I try to get you to celebrate it in your heart. I get you to affirm the, with faith that you trust in that. And, and I hope you're spiritually strengthened by that. But it's not by the eating and it's not by the drinking. Those are the tangible elements that God, Christ puts us through to remember it, just like baptism, right? There's nothing in the water. There's nothing mystical that takes place. He's not in the water, with the water, under the water, right? The, the picture is of us remembering Christ. And again, Zwingli's been castigated by some and, and maligned by some because it's like, well, he makes the, the Lord's Supper nothing. I, I don't believe that, being of the memorial meal view. I, I think it's very significant, but it's not what is taught in consubstantiational. So in Protestantism, there's con, spiritual, and memorial, okay? You're pastors of the memorial view. 
Uh, well, what do you do with those statements about blood? And the blood is my all oh, great. Let me give you some other examples from the book of John, because John is one uh, who hits this real hard in chapter six. But in chapter eight, he says this: Jesus spoke to them. He said, "I am the light of the world." Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We read that. You have no problem with that, but you don't think Christ in, with, under, or turns into photons, right? You, you, you get it. Uh, I think we should get the fact that Christ is not turning wine into his blood or turning bread into his body. And he's not trying to say, well, I have a special relationship with bread and wine or any more than he has a special relationship with photons. This is a great illustration and a great picture of what Christ is doing. But like salt and a lot of other things, this is an example. John 10, he says this, John 10, 7 and 9. Christ said to them, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And he talks about that in verse 8, and then he says in verse 9, he says it again, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture through the door, and I'm the door. I am the door. No one pictures Christ as a piece of wood, right, with hinges. No one ever thinks he has a special relationship to doors and hinges, right? It's, it, it's not there anymore. I would say, to take it back to where we started, that those who were eating the, the lamb, the roasted lamb, and eating the unleavened bread thought that there was anything about that in particular. It was obedience in doing that, thinking about substitution, thinking about taking my, my, my leave of, of Egypt and, and not fitting in. It wasn't the element itself. John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the vine, my father is the vine dresser. None of us think he's, he's a vine. These are pictures and, and, and word pictures. And in this case, it's a real picture in an element. It is, a, it is a living illustration. He took the cup, and when he given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. His blood is all still in his body, right? There's no pints being lost here. See what I'm saying? There's no thought of that. There's no transubstantiation. There's nothing mystical or magical. The picture is, this is, this is my blood. I am the door. I am the light of the world. I am the vine. You are the branches. It's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, but it hadn't been. He didn't dump it on the ground. That was the picture, though. He was about to die. He was going to the cross. Then, if that doesn't convince you, I tell you I will not drink again of this blood until that day when I drink the blood anew with you. Is that what it says? This fruit of the vine. I mean, I think that takes this back to what we're talking about. He clarifies in the same sentence. This is not my blood. Oh, yeah, I said it was my blood. Just like I said, I'm the door, I'm the light, I'm the vine. But that's not the picture. I said, you're the salt of the world. These are pictures here. Pictures that are supposed to represent something that's deeper and, and richer than just stating the facts. And he ties it to an element that is so ingrained in Jewish culture, the eating of the Passover meal, that speaks of their redemption that this was then memorialized as something they were to do from that day forward. Lord's Supper. You're listening to Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares and a special edition of Ask Pastor Mike discussing the practice of communion. If you missed any portion of this message, or if you'd like to listen again, be sure to visit focalpointradio.org. You know, intensive Bible studies, like the one you just heard, aren't just for seminarians. They should be accessible to anyone who wants to know the truth behind the doctrines of faith. That's why at Focal Point we present solid biblical answers about Christianity in a way that you and I can understand. And if you want to hear more solid biblical teaching, then please support this ministry by making a donation to Focal Point today. Call 888-320-5885 or donate online at focalpointradio.org. 
And now let's talk with Pastor Mike. Uh, Mike, recently you wrote a book about envy, and there are a lot of issues people are worried about these days. Finances, politics, uncertainty about the future. But I'm going to be honest, I don't think a lot of people are thinking about envy. So why is envy such a big cause for concern? Envy often goes undetected or ignored. But if you knew all the damage that it was causing, I mean, in your soul, in your relationships, and even society at large, you'd do everything you possibly could to root it out. That's what prompted me to do a study on envy. And I wrote my findings in a book to help you better understand the costly problem of envy and all of its related expressions of coveting and jealousy. My book is called Envy, A Big Problem You Didn't Know You Had. And it's my prayer that this book will provide you with some hope and help and an effective counterattack that will not only please the Lord, but it's going to greatly improve your daily life. It's time to rethink the pervasive and corrosive sin of envy. So get in touch with Focal Point today to request your copy of my new book. Thanks, Pastor Mike. Request your copy of Envy, A Big Problem You Didn't Know You Had when you call 888-320-5885 or when you donate online at focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm your host, Dave Drewy. Join us again next time as we continue exploring God's Word right here on Focal Point. This program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.